Well, now it's my opportunity to say good morning to you and uh, begin by sharing with you how our family has made a very important decision recently, um, one that is going to impact how we direct our finances and what will be allowed to make its way into the walls of our home. The choice we've had to make is one of those life-changing decisions that I assume many others of you in the hall this morning have had to make at some point, whether as individuals, for yourself, or for your family. I know I'm building up to this, but it's not all that big. It's, it's that all-important consideration of which video streaming services are you going to cancel and which video streaming services are you going to keep. Will it be Amazon Prime? Will it be Netflix? Apple TV or Disney Plus. Now you will be relieved to know, I've built up your anxiety, that Amanda and I recently made the consequential decision to add Disney Plus, which means that my three children not only have a vast and new catalog of viewing pleasure at their disposal, but also that dad, dad has access to every Star Wars movie ever made. Star Wars, that epic movie franchise, the success of which has spanned generations spawning uh, sequels, prequels, spin-offs. And I'm sure you've noticed the intentional way that each of those movies starts with what? The opening crawl. The big, bold, symphonic theme music and text scrolling off into space, setting the stage for what is to come. And that scrolling prologue is by intentional design. It's meant to, to draw us in, to bring a sense of awe and awareness and appreciation as you, the viewer, encounter things like Jedi and lightsabers and stormtroopers for the first time. It draws you in and is meant to kind of try to elevate the story, to bring a, a greater level of engagement with things that are maybe not that familiar to us. Now last Sunday, as uh, Matt mentioned earlier, that Mike took us through the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of John and took us through and introduced us to what we are looking at in this entire Christmas season of the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus. And John begins his Gospel about the life of Jesus with a bit of his own scrolling prologue. Or should I be saying, well... I, am, I, am I slipping into American English there? I don't know. So forgive me if, if, whatever. But it begins in such a way, John's gospel, that we the readers will have a particular perspective on all that it reports about Jesus. And the whole point is to get us to engage with it in a, in a different way. In short, the perspective John wants us to have as we read about Jesus in his gospel is something beyond our capacity to fully fathom. That Jesus of Nazareth is at the same time fully God and fully human in one person. He's God in flesh, incarnated, enfleshed. Without grasping this essential truth about Jesus, there is no way to fully understand and appreciate his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. But why Philippians 2? At Christmas time. And our passage today is not typically where one turns in the Bible when Christmas time comes around, is it? All this at this time of year, 
typically we are engaging with passages that include uh, angels making announcements to shepherds or those shepherds watching over their flocks by night and wise men following a star in search of a newborn king. But all of these essential Christmas events and the beautiful narrative that Scripture presents about the birth of the Lord Jesus that perhaps we are quite familiar with are framed by significant theological realities that should shape our understanding of them, much like that crawl, and how we respond. So why Philippians 2? Well, while we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus at his birth, Philippians 2, in the same way, draws our gaze to the ongoing impact that Christ's incarnation is supposed to have on our day-to-day functioning with the way we interact with with one another if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus to rescue us from our sins. It is not an obscure theory or some finer point of theology reserved for those with advanced training, but it's an essential consideration for us this morning for shaping our attitude and our actions. So as we come to Philippians 2, there's going to be one big idea that I want you to see. That the incarnation of Jesus embodies the humility and consideration that should characterize our interactions with one another as King's Church, Chessington. That's why it's so important. As the Apostle Paul walks us through what actually was involved at the incarnation of Jesus, it will become clear that none of us will ever be able to protest to the Lord and say, you're asking too much of me, that the setting aside of my rights or my sense of dignity is just a bridge too far. And this is not something that's like organizational, that's only supposed to be true of us as an organization, but in our day-to-day, you know, organic relationships at home with our children, our spouse, Or at work, it's supposed to be something that comes into all of those things, in marriage, as singles, as parents, with our co-workers and our friends. And it's imperative that we look at the incarnation of Jesus this morning in Philippians 2 and appreciate what really took place that first Christmas from a perspective that's different than the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks. And a perspective that's different than the, the, the wise men and the kings coming in search. We need to see it from a different perspective and align ourselves with the Lord Jesus as his coming in the way that we live with one another. So what insight does Philippians 2 offer us on the incarnation of Jesus? And before we go any further, I would just like us to pause for a brief moment of prayer. If you would, just bow with me as we pray before we jump into the text. Father, I was thinking this morning of that passage in John's Gospel where the Greeks came to Philip and said, we would like to see Jesus. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, it's my prayer, it's our prayer that through your word you would help us to see Jesus. Not just what we think we know about him. Not just what we think we know fully what Christmas is all about. But Lord, that you would help us to come to your word open. That you might speak to us that you might challenge us, that you might comfort us, that you might draw us to yourself. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So what insight does Philippians 2 give us? Well, I've already said how it embodies that humiliation and consideration, but let's look at what happened with Jesus. The first is we're given insight 
into the mind and motivation of Jesus as it relates to the incarnation. In opening our eyes to the minds and motive of Jesus as it relates to the incarnation, we come to a level of understanding about what was his existence before the incarnation, before he came as a baby. And we get a glimpse of what was going on with Jesus before he came to earth uh, when we look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me, if you will. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Well, Paul writes here, makes it clear that Jesus eternally existed as God, co-equal in every aspect and attribute, and that this is his inherent nature. This is who he is, not something to which he as a human being was elevated to. Now, some translations of the New Testament translate being in the very nature God, like the NIV that we're using this morning, and they translate it differently. Maybe you've seen it as being in the form of God which is a more literal translation of the Greek language, but that doesn't necessarily make it a better rendering because the word in question here is a word related to our English word metamorphosis. It's morphe. It's a Greek translation of a word, which that morphe means a change in physical form, like we would say a caterpillar changes, you know, cocoons, and metamorphosis, it changes into a butterfly. But we'll often even use the word metamorphosis metaphorically. Won't we? When someone goes through a massive life change, maybe they kick a, a habit or an addiction, and it's like they're a whole new person. There's been a metamorphosis that's gone on in their lives. See, there can be a range of meanings to, to a word in any language. And what's here saying in the very essence, the very nature God is better because... Paul was not trying to convey some idea about the physical form or shape of God, but rather the essential nature of being God. And that's clear. If you look at the text, when you look at the next line, it's referring to Jesus' equality with God. See, the two lines work together. And they make this assertion that there was never a point in all of eternity past, where Jesus did not exist as God. And so prior to his birth in Bethlehem, all the glory, all the worship, all the power and honor were his with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit as God himself. But verse 6 says, while this was all his by right, all the privileges and prerogatives of being God, that he did not consider that, that equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Again, the literal wording here in Greek is quite vivid. It's saying it's the idea of like clinging to something, of snatching it and seizing it as an object never to be released. Now, all we have to do is look at world history from ancient times to current events, and it would not take us long for us to discover that those with privilege and power are typically loath to release it, but more often than not, cling to power and position for personal gain. But as Scripture gives us insight into the, the motives and the mind of Christ here, which in by itself is just amazing to think, it's giving us insight into what was in the mind of Christ in eternity past considering all these things, that even though he was the creator and sustainer of all things, that Jesus did not selfishly cling to what was his by 
right. But rather, if you continue on in verse 7, it says, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, I want to say it is immensely important to approach these words with great care so as not to make them say something about Jesus that they simply don't mean. There has been significant theological error that has happened by doing so. Because the phrase, he made himself nothing, taken more literally again in translation is, he emptied himself. Which some have taken to mean that at the incarnation of Jesus, when he came as a human being, that he somehow divested himself. He gave up certain things about being divine, such as his omnipotence or his omnipresence, or his omniscience, that in coming as man, Jesus became somehow some diminished form of God. But there's a major problem with this approach, and that it's impossible for God to become something less than he is. In fact, to become anything other than he is, to diminish himself in any of his attributes. And so if Jesus existed as God in eternity past, as this passage is clearly asserting, emptying himself in coming to earth at the incarnation has to mean something else. So what does emptying himself really mean? The key is in understanding this as Jesus emptying himself by the addition of something rather than the taking of divinity away. Consider verse 7 carefully again. He says, he emptied himself, how? By taking the nature of a servant. At the incarnation, all of the glory, the power, the dignity, and everything associated with deity were united forever with a human nature and a human body. The expression of being made in human likeness does not indicate some kind of shell game. You know, where he came and he put on that human body like we put on our, our clothes. It means as people encountered Jesus um, while he walked on earth, that he appeared just like any other person in every way. By appearance, he came in human likeness. He seemed to be a man, just like any other man walking the earth at that time or since. Contrary to what you may think, there would be no halo around his head. There would be no glow about him as he walked the streets of Nazareth or Jerusalem or anywhere else that he went. But there was more to Jesus than simple appearances would indicate. Yes, he was a man, but he was more. He was the God-man. Now, it isn't really possible to find an analogy that fully captures what these words of Scripture are telling us about the incarnation of Jesus, specifically, that he made himself nothing by adding something to himself. But, this is going to make it sound like I watch a lot of TV, and I really don't, okay? I don't watch many things, but there is a TV program in the U.S. I think it's in the U.K. as well. In the U.S., it's called Undercover Boss. Is there undercover big boss here? Is that something like that? I don't know. But that may be a little bit of help in this regard because in it, someone in upper management at a company goes undercover as an entry-level employee. 
In every way, they enter into the experience and enter into that world with the idea that they will discover faults and uh, with that company that need to be addressed. So they retain all the position and power of high-level management. But they set aside the privilege to enter into the realities of what it means to be someone of little consequence so that something good can come of it. Now that is a very imperfect illustration of what is happening at the Incarnation, but at an infinitely more profound level. That Jesus entered our world as one of us, making himself nothing by taking on humanity, all while remaining fully God as well. Jesus entered our world as one of us. So we're, giving, we're given insight into this, in this passage into the mind and motives of Jesus at the Incarnation. He humbled himself, not holding on to what was rightfully his, willingly lowering himself by becoming human as well. But the text goes further. We're also shown the depth to which Jesus continued to humble himself on our behalf. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, we can't truly conceive of the humility in operation when Jesus, as God, chose to become the God-man and be born in Bethlehem. But the journey of the incarnation took him lower still in humility. Now in his existence as the God-man and in his incarnate existence by being obedient to the point of death. As one of us, Jesus chose the path of obedience to the Father's will that eventually took him all the way to the cross of Calvary for all of us. He came as one of us to go for all of us. And this particularly savage and shameful form of execution Crucifixion was reserved for the slaves, insurrectionists, and the worst forms of criminal, of which Jesus most certainly was not. It was a scandal. It was scandalous to be executed via the cross. The Roman statesman Cicero is quoted as saying, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he choose the cross? It's because this is the very reason why he came in the way he did. Jesus was born in a stable that he might die on a cross as a substitute for me and for you. In his body to take upon himself the guilt, the shame, the judgment we deserve and in turn offer us freedom, forgiveness, and life through faith in him. It's the great exchange that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, you through his poverty might become rich. That all that, was Je- all that was ours and guilt and shame was put upon Jesus and all that is his can become ours through grace, through faith in him. 
In his commentary in the book of Philippians, Gordon Fee writes this. Here is the one who was as equal with God, has most fully revealed the truth about God, that God is love, and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice. Cruel, humiliating, death on a cross for the sake of those he loves. But now I want us to come back to those to whom this section of Scripture was originally written. See, Paul composed this letter to the Christians who were in Philippi, and they didn't find themselves in the easiest of circumstances. In fact, just before this section that we're considering this morning, he wrote to them about how it had been granted to them not only to believe in Jesus and receive all of this, but also to suffer for him. See, difficulty in life, whether it's from overt pressure or persecution by us being Christians, or simply from experienced life in a broken world, has the potential to do something. It has the potential to bring out the worst in us. It isn't easy, is it, when life seems to bog down into a continuing experience of trauma, vulnerability, Fear, confusion, uncertainty, and loss. There is a potential for these to bring out the worst in acts of self-preservation, self-preference, self-promotion, and self-seeking. See, this was the danger for the Philippians as they were facing difficult circumstances. And I would dare to say we're facing difficult circumstances ourselves frequently, haven't we, in the last year to year and a half. Especially so in these last week and these uncertain days in the run-up to Christmas. But Paul's words are a clarion call to consider all that we have come to share in Jesus and because of Jesus and to show one another and to show the world a different way. Come back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. All that we just took in about Jesus, he says, this was the basis of what he had said in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being, in one, one, uh, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, you could read all these if statements and think, well, there's some doubt here, but they're not meant to be statements of doubt. There's not, there's not even a possibility of a negative answer to any of them. They're supposed to function like rhetorical questions, you know, like you ask a question, people are supposed to think and generate a response, a response in their mind, and it's meant to trigger a thought as they are presented to the reader, to you and I, and to them. The Philippians were meant to read all these things as Paul listed them and affirm them as they did so, to say in their heart and in their mind, there is encouragement from being united with Christ. Yes, there is comfort from his love. This had been their shared experience with one another and with Paul. But Paul sensed now that this unity was now under strain and threat by the circumstances they faced. And in a personal appeal, Paul urged them not to let all of this you know, slip through their fingers because of what was happening to them and around them. He said, make my joy complete, which wasn't a reference. It wasn't self-centered 
or manipulative. It revealed his, his earnest inmost desire for the Philippians' spiritual vitality and well-being. And you can hear the urgency in Paul's pen almost coming out through his pen when everything he is urging the Philippians to do finds its most perfect expression in Jesus Christ at his incarnation. When he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Can you see how the incarnation is not just some profound theological thought that we're supposed to just think about every once in a while or study, but it's a paradigm, it's a pattern. It's a model. It reveals a mindset and a model of selfless humility that we are called as Christians to emulate and follow. I'll say it again. The incarnation of Jesus embodies that humility and that consideration that we're supposed to have for one another at King's Church, Chesington. Now in my home, we have an expression. Well, my wife and I have an expression. We say, everything's great in theory. Which means, you can tell by some things in our lives, that the experience of something may be completely different than what we think it will be or what we say about it. Everything's great in theory. And all this humility and consideration talk of others sounds wonderful until that time comes when you actually have to do it. It is beautiful rhetoric, but the trick is translating it into reality, isn't it? Especially when we genuinely and significantly disagree. When our backs are turned to each other, figuratively or literally. It is most needed when it is most difficult to exhibit, when we are under the most pressure, when we would rather vent our frustrations, do what's easy for us, and forget about the interests of others. It can mean swallowing our pride. Setting aside your preferences, your prerogatives, and serving others. So by way of application, can I, can I just ask you, if, if you're married, are you following Jesus' model of humility and servanthood for the good of your spouse? If you are a parent, have you embraced that role <laughs> That can call you to give and forgive and sacrifice again and again <laughs> and again. In your workplace, have you genuinely taken an interest in the well-being of your colleagues, your co-workers, or customers, particularly those you find challenging? I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine who's atheist. He says, you know, I work with people who are Christians. And essentially what he said was missing in their testimony to him was what we're looking at today. Was their humility and consideration for others. See, there are countless settings and ways in which we need to humble ourselves and consider others. And eventually this is difficult because there comes a point when it costs you something. There comes a point when it costs me something. You'll have to say no to something you want to hold on to and feel like you deserve to hold on to it. And you may. 
It's yours. But it will require you to lower yourself like Jesus did. To take on the role of a servant and not be the one served. But as we have seen in our passage this morning, the distance to which we are called to humble ourselves in the interest of others will never compare to the depths to which Jesus humbled himself in taking on flesh and going to the cross. And since he is one of us and God at the same time, he is the only one that we can turn to who can truly help us to follow him in this journey of living out the Incarnation. Because that's what Paul is calling us to do. Live out the incarnation. Look to the incarnation, the mindset and motives of Jesus behind it, the depths of the humility to which he was willing to go, and live that out in your relationships with one another. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, the passage doesn't just set up a model. It gives us a Savior. It gives us the one not only to save us from the penalty of our sin, but it gives us someone to look to to free us from our sin. And you see, our passage doesn't just do that. It gives us the insight into the mind and motivation of Jesus like we spoke about. It doesn't just show us the depth of humility to which he went. But we're also confronted by a bold declaration of his power and his majesty. Look at verse 9. In light of all of this and all that Jesus had done, it says, Therefore God the Father, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The baby in the manger, the humble servant on the cross, despite all appearances, is the Lord of all before whom every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, God the Father exalting him, To the highest place, again, doesn't mean that Jesus was willingly demoted to less than God and then promoted back to being fully God as a reward for his efforts. That's not what this means. It means that God the Father vindicated Jesus. He vindicated him after his death, showing him to be equal with him as God. How? By raising him from the tomb. Jesus humbled himself in his birth and death But God the Father exalted him in his resurrection. He lowered himself, but all will lower themselves before him, declaring that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, either in joy as those who have put their trust in him and look forward in expectation or under compulsion, tragically acknowledging too late what was resisted in life. So Jesus is not merely an example for us to follow, He is God. That's what Jesus is Lord means and how much that would have spoken to the Philippians in a world where they were being forced into saying Caesar is Lord. He was saying, no, every tongue is going to confess, even his, that Jesus is Lord. He is God and the king before whom we must all bow in humility and faith. And ask yourself, in light of this passage, what more could God do 
in demonstrating his love for you by Jesus coming to earth as one of us. What greater sacrifice could he have made than the death of his own son, of Jesus, his own death on the cross? And how much more simple could he have made our response than repentance and faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, the humble acknowledgement of our need, and to look to Jesus. This is the reason for Christmas. This is why it's the season of hope. This is a real and lasting hope that will not fade or disappoint. It's a hope that can only be offered because Jesus humbled himself, left heaven, came to earth, on the earth, went to the cross. It's a hope that can only be offered because of that. So in Philippians, this is what we've seen. We've been given that insight into the mind and motive of Christ. We've been shown the depths to which Jesus humbled himself by going to the cross. And we've been confronted with this bold declaration of the power and majesty of the risen Lord. And it's my prayer as we close that hearts respond in repentance and faith where Jesus has yet to be received as Savior and Lord. Perhaps you're here this morning for the first time or for many times you've entered into this hall, yet there is still the need for each of us to make that response to Jesus. And may those of us who've received him follow his example of humility and consideration for others within our fellowship and those with whom we interact. And may the name of Jesus Christ be honored and adored above all other names during this season when we remember and celebrate the Incarnation. When we remember that in the person of Jesus Christ, God became one of us to rescue all of us from our sin. Let's pray. Listen to the words of this familiar Christmas carol. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Father, this morning... Our prayer was that you would allow us to see Jesus. I pray that your word has accomplished that for which you've sent it out to do this morning. May it find fertile soil in our hearts. May it not be snatched away, but may it penetrate. May it challenge us. May it comfort us. Might it lead us not to walk away the same, but to respond to Jesus as we've encountered him today in your word. And we pray that above all else, 
that the name of Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. That truly in this season, in our hearts, in our lives, in our celebrating and in our serving, that there would be glory given to the newborn king. For it's in his name that we pray.